Welcome back to What A Hit Son. Today, we continue our festive period of episodes. And for that, I need someone special to join me. So, making his return after joining us in Season 1, we have my dad, Fergal Maher, joining. Everton uh, fanatic. And welcome back, Dad. Great to have you back on. Thank you. Nice to be here. Um, I suppose, first things first, uh, what's been your opinion of Everton this season? Oh, I think there's been a, a great change despite all the drama that's going on at the club. Um, I suppose um, they had Everton written off financially and every other way. And, and they're in a very difficult time. And they have a very good manager who is strong enough to be able to ignore all that and focus on the football. Yeah, I do agree with you. I think... Um, you've been. I think you've changed people's expectations of you this season. I think about how you've played. Um, do you think the players? We, Rory and I were talking about in the la- last episode. Do you think players are motivated by the whole um, charge that you've had with the the docking of the ten points? Because with that, with that docking of ten points, if they if it didn't happen, you'd be up in like ninth in the table. Well, you see, I think. Um uh, when something as dramatic as that happens, it can have two effects on a club um, in the sense that it can really upset a team. Yeah. Um, they have a great leader in Sean Dyche that's used that to galvanise the team and to use it like a little bit of a kind of siege mentality we'll show them, uh, has seems to have come out. Not that that has been said or anything in any way, yeah. but they've used it to their benefit to focus on getting results. Yeah, I, I do think that. I think defensively as well, you've got, you've been very solid this season. Like Pickford's kept six clean sheets in the league this season, which has been fantastic. You've got Jared Braithwaite, who looks phenomenal in that defense as well. Look, great young player who is being eyed up by some of the big clubs already um, as a potential defender. Um, what do you think Sean Dyche has installed into that team, really, looking at looking at it? Like, what, has he gone more defensive with kind of the counter-attack, or is he more kind of... Well, I, I think you have to look at the managers that have been there in the last number of years. Um, and if you go back even as far as Sam Allardyce when he went in, he did a job and we were in the relegation zone and we ended up finishing eighth. Hmm. And I suppose a lot of the Everton supporters at the time, and I wasn't one of them, said, oh, he'll play terrible football. And then we had a series of managers that just didn't do it. Hmm. Now, we thought we had a saviour and Carlo Ancelotti, and we had an investor and a new owner, and it all looked very, very positive. And he was going to get us to play a different type of football. Yeah. Uh, and that project was stopped in the middle, if you like, because um, he went back to yeah. Real Madrid. And I suppose the way you look at it, when Real Madrid come calling, you don't really say no. No. Now, the thing about it is... Um, I. Rafa Benitez wasn't given a chance. You might say, should he have ever gotten it after the Liverpool one? But, uh, you know, Frank Lampard was inexperienced. Yeah. But Sean Dyche had already done it at Burnley for 10 years yeah. 
with less resources than he has at Everton now. Yeah. And less quality players. So with his experience and knowledge of football, he was able to take that squad and get the most out of them. And that mm. is what he's doing. Uh, the difference is, well, yes, he does play a counter-attacking game and it mightn't be as attractive as you'd like, but it's it works. It's yeah. highly effective. Everyone knows their role. Yeah. And there seems to be a certain amount with all the uh, controversy, a certain amount of indiscipline in the squad, and he seems to have eliminated that. Yeah, like I, I look at kind of see even with Sean Dyche as well. He's he's got some players in there that he's managed before. Like you've got Tarkovsky in there, you've got Dwight McNeil as well. So he's he's kind of got faces that he knows he can trust yes. in the team as well. So I suppose building a squad around players as well, bringing in talent like that, it's helped manage the likes of Calvert Lewin, I suppose, who's who's very injury prone kind of for you you've been able to manage him better as a player so that it's not on on him to get you the goals it's it the rest of the team can help provide for that so you kind of divide your goals across the team that's right the thing about calvert loon as well though and and um i'm not in the medical or the kit room to know it but they reckoned under benitez and under frank lampard he was rushed back before he was really given time yeah to heal um, and that's always the danger with a player that, you know, uh, they're constantly getting injured then. Yeah. You know? Whereas under Sean Dyche, I think he had a bit, of, a bit of confidence that he would bring him around if he gave him a bit more time. And I think that's worked. Yeah. No, I agree with that. I suppose kind of speaking on, um, obviously, your performance today, you, you were unlucky against Spurs because obviously you pulled the goal back but just couldn't get that, that second goal what do you think kind of was the difference in that game? Do you just think Spurs kind of took their chances early and were just able to hold you off nearly um, at, ho- at home for themselves? Yeah, well, I, I think Spurs play in a, a very open, expansive game. They press very high. Yeah. Uh, people have been very critical of the way they play. Yeah. So they start very fast and they've gone up 1-0 up in quite a number of matches before this recent run of good form again. Um, and ended up losing matches. Yeah. Um, in the first twenty minutes, they got their two goals, and that's where they're, you know, they're very, very, um, very quick, um, and they don't seem to worry about defending. Yeah. Too much. You yeah. Know? But like uh, at one stage there in the second half, their line was so high that when the ball went in, it was Ricardson was the one back clearing the ball because the whole line was nearly just at the halfway line yeah yeah and with with obviously kind of looking at obviously Spurs do you think maybe it's something that Ange needs Ange Postologlu needs to look at for for Spurs especially that obviously they're playing this this high line but say playing someone like Manchester City or playing Liverpool and that uh, like as as they did against Chelsea, even when they went down to nine men, do you think they'll be found out more for consistently doing that and not ro- changing their tactics up more? Well, I mean that's always been Tottenham. Tottenham play lovely, attractive football, but they're never consistent. Yeah. Um. And like today, now the way they use the wings and the way they can get the ball in quickly, 
and get goals. It's very exciting. Yeah. And what's quite unusual about them without Harry Kane, they seem to be doing very well this year. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's Tottenham are always appear to be this team that just don't have that strength hmm. of a proper defence and a structure yeah. that can get a one nil win and hold out but they that's not and the way they play yeah and with them do you think the other problem for them is squad depth as well that obviously they've got some key players like human son james madison michael van de Vin, probably been some standout players in that team but if they lose those key players do you think in the long run of a season especially when they're not playing european football that maybe that would hamper their team performance as well that those key players missing can really kind of change their performance. Yeah, I mean, if if you look at it, um, to be a top four side, you do need a very strong squad because if you're competing then as well, I know they're not in the Champions League, but uh, you, you just need a very strong squad and the squad isn't as good, say, as an Arsenal or a Liverpool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I suppose, obviously, asking about Everton, obviously, we had the whole, uh, we, I mentioned earlier about the, the points deduction. Um, what's kind of your opinion on the points deduction kind of in general? Do you think it was very harsh on Everton, really, as a club? Um, well, I mean, um, I think it's, if we did trade, if you like, um, outside the rules, I think you have to take your punishment. Yes. That's the first thing. I suppose it seems a little bit strange that we do that and you see the likes of Man City who've been doing it consistently for longer with much bi- bigger sums of money. Yeah. Um, it looks like, are they testing the ground to see can they get away with it with Everton? Yeah. And then um, apply it to Man City. And of course, Chelsea are there as well. And the bigger clubs seem to have the political power maybe the legal maybe not political it's the right word but yeah. it's the legal strength to yeah. be able to argue their cases in in um, in their defense yeah no i agree um on that i i think it was it was harsh on everton especially as you mentioned with, with the whole man city and, and chelsea thing do you think obviously if obviously the points deduction stands in that do you think the points deduction um, should be s- more severe with both Chelsea and Man City, and if or what their punishment should be like. What what in your opinion should be the right punishment for for them? Do you think? Well, I suppose it's it's far more exp- expensive, extensive breaches. Yeah. So I think the punishment should be far s- more severe. Now yeah. they've talked about, you know, would they put. Man City in the first division. I don't know what the punishment should be, but I think it has to be strong enough to send a message mm. and to get clubs back into line. Yeah. I mean, there's a history of doing this in Europe in the past for other teams. Yeah. And I think it should be imposed. Yeah. Uh, but I suppose I think it's up to the powers to be to see how severe that should be. Yeah. Uh, but just making points deduction wouldn't be sufficient. I think it has to be more severe than that. Yeah, like, I think what some people were saying is, uh, I think, realistically, they mentioned the whole docking of them of titles, and in my opinion, I don't really care about that, even if it gives Arsenal a a title. I don't agree, because it comes to that point, is like, 
they won against they won the title against Liverpool. They won the title against Arsenal, and having fans having to go through that and that heartache of not winning the trophy to then be told, "Oh, you actually did win the trophy," but just because Man City have been dock trophy. So I don't agree with that. My, in my opinion, realistically, how I should see it is because it's been so severe. The best message you can send to clubs not to do anything going forward that breach the rules is relegate them to the National League or something like that, or relegate them two or three divisions minimum. And you say, look, this is the serious punishment if you breach these rules. Like you look at Italy, for example, uh, Juventus. Obviously, they, it wasn't um, FFP that they broke, but they it was match-fixing rules that they broke. And because of that, they were relegated and given a points deduction to the the Serie B in, in the Italian League. And I think giving them a serious punishment tells English clubs and, and, and all that and all their, their owners like your Chelsea now, look, there there is a rules. If you don't follow the rules, this is the circumstances. This is how you severely are punished. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Um, I think it has to be as strong as that, particularly when they seem to be doing it consistently year on year and just ignoring the rules. Yeah. 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 Um, I suppose then, obviously, looking at uh, some of the other things, uh, issues that have kind of happened, I, I suppose, as of recently, I suppose the biggest one, in my opinion, is probably VAR and referees. What's kind of been your opinion on how referees have kind of performed in leagues as of recent like and obviously the VAR side as well how have how have you found that kind of watching it like in my opinion I found it very frustrating to watch because I think VAR is very inconsistent and has plenty of flaws and I don't know whether it's down to the people using the technology or how they're um, integrating the rules and stuff like that and I think with referees as well um, at times I find they're a pain with dishing out cards willy-nilly now. It, it seems to be a thing now. They're giving cards for, for silly things now. Well, yeah, I, I suppose like you look at some of the refs, um, some of the matches I've seen recently where they are very good at not giving out too many cards in a game. That's a good yeah. thing. Today, if you look at the 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 one of the matches, the Liverpool-Arsenal match, and you look at the way <coughs> the the decisions were made. I don't think there's an awful lot you can do in that situation. Yeah. But when they slow down and spend seven or ten minutes looking at something, it seems a little bit ridiculous. Yeah. You know. Um, and I suppose watching uh, play in real time is probably a better way to do it. But they seem to slow it down all the time. Yeah. And then. You know, it looks a lot more dangerous than it actually is in real time. Yeah, I agree. So, so, I agree. I think so. I think with red cards especially, this whole stopping freeze frame very yeah. slow, it makes a tackle look harder. So it's very hard to judge if it's a red card or not. So it is something I, I don't agree with. I think also the other thing as well, I agree, agree fully with you, this whole taking seven to ten minutes to figure out if it was an offside when it's not clear it's an offside I don't agree with and I know from being at games and you're waiting there you see you, you have a goal and you're waiting there and it says VR checking this and you're waiting for five minutes to then be told all oh, the goal still stands or the goal doesn't stand 
So you can't really celebrate a goal until you know the VAR have said it's okay and it is a goal. Yeah, that's right. And, and um, it must be very frustrating for the players when they can celebrate. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, looking at, obviously, with with that as well, do you think there needs to be a rethink both on the VAR and how it's being used, whether maybe former players come in as well as referees to get both sides of the aspect or whether it's maybe just the referees need to be retrained properly on the use of VAR? Well, they seem to have the technology, but there was an instance there earlier in the season where they didn't simply draw the lines. Yeah. Um, it doesn't matter how skilled you are if you don't do the basics right. Yeah. Um, I think, like, there have been matches recently where there are very quick decisions where you agree with them or not. And there is, like in all football, over a season, hmm. there are days it'll go with you, there are days they won't. And if you look at a lot of the managers, they take the rough with the smooth and they realise they're lucky or not on yeah. a day. And if you could get it to that level where decisions are made quickly yeah. and consistently, but they seem to go to this Stockley Park and and make a science out of something and it yeah. doesn't need to be. Yeah, and I think a lot of the time as well with the whole Stockley Park thing, more than likely if a referee sent to the, the monitor, he's going to change the decision. I've never seen a referee really go to the monitor and they literally say, make your opinion on this and the referee will literally go with their decision, no matter what. Like, I've never seen a decision where the referee overrules. The, but, like, in the Champions League, for example, I've seen foreign referees actually say, no, I'm sticking with my decision on field. And it's something I I kind of criticise referees, that they, they're not sticking by their decisions. Even if it's one, it's a 50-50 call, and it could be called. And I think the other thing that really annoys me is the whole handball rule. Nowadays, I don't know what a handball is anymore. Whether it's by your side, whether it's thing like I'm seeing handballs be given for the ball literally being kicked within two yards of a player where they literally can't move his hand. And like they're expecting players to literally be running around with their hands behind their back nearly to avoid connecting the ball. Like, what's been your opinion on the handball rule? Well, you see, I think the handball rule has nothing to do with VAR, but if yeah. someone hits a ball at pace at you from three feet away or four feet away from you, uh, it's very hard to withdraw your hands or whatever yeah. if they happen to be in the wrong place. So it seems to be very harsh yeah. in certain cases. Um, you know, so, yeah, there is inconsistency there, definitely, mm. about it, which is quite frustrating if you support the team that the decision goes against. Yeah, and and, like, especially this season when we've had decisions that have been very similar that one week the handball's given for a situation and then the next week the exact same thing happens and then they don't give it. Yeah. So it just seems like, I, I know like so Gary Lineker, they they said it on, I think, because of the Martin Odegaard incident earlier as well. It just, no one knows what handball is anymore and it really is something that I think needs to be distinguished in the game yes. when it's a rule that's been in the game for so long. Yes, I agree with you. Yeah, I, I think they, they need to make decisions on handball and be consistent and give that message to referees. I think you'll you'll never get 100% right, but if your hand is down by your side or you're within a few feet of someone and the ball is coming at pace, um, you know, there's not a lot you can do as yeah. a player. And I think 
a bit of realism needs to come into it. Yeah, no, exactly. I do agree. Um, When you've looked at, obviously, the league this season and you've looked, obviously, what's been your opinion on Man City this season? Like, they've gone from being treble winners to, I think, being very underperforming, I think, really, this season. Will people look at them when they've gone as a team who've been getting 90 points pretty much every season in the league? And I think when I've watched them this season and when I saw them even in the Champions League now, I was very disappointed in, in the side that they were this season compared to last season. Is it a, f- a thing of complacency? Is it a thing of maybe the effort isn't there by the players because they're like, we've pretty much won everything? Um, well, if you look back on football, even before the Premier League, and you look back at teams like Liverpool in the ni- 90s, you look at United, um, and United like won the, the league three times in a row but um, but there was a gap in between. So yeah. if you take it, if you have a team and you've got it to that level and they w- win three titles, um, by the time they get to the fourth year, there must be a certain amount of, sure, we've done this before. But equally, is your team as strong? I mean, look at Man City this year. They don't have Kevin De Bruyne, who seems to be the engine room. Yeah, They don't have John Stokes, who I would have been very critical a number of years ago, yeah. but last year has become very strong, and he's badly yeah. missed at the back now. Yeah. So, plus the fact that Arsenal have got better, uh, Liverpool are on their third squad, I would say. Yeah. Um, a whole new setup. So, like, it's very hard to predict who will win, but if someone says, I don't think Man City will win it this year. Um, I wouldn't be too surprised, yeah. Um, because they're not the same team that was mm. there performing in the last number of years, you know. And and there is a trend. It's very hard to keep doing it. Yeah, I suppose. And obviously losing, I like Rory and I said it the, the last day. I think losing the likes of Mares and Gundogan especially. I think the loss of him moving out of that team, I think, was a big loss because he was so. People didn't realise how pinnacle he was in that midfield. He'd bring goals. He'd bring that kind of good presence as well as obviously Rodri, who potentially now is going to be out for a period because he went down injured in the, the obviously the Club World Cup final for them. So that potentially could be a, another big loss to their team. Yeah. But again, with Man City, they are that type of team that obviously the first half of the season, they can be poor. And then the second half, they could go on and win 18 games out of 18. Yeah. So they are that team that can just find that thing do you think as well with them they've gone to this side obviously that you've got Erling Haaland who can score you 52 goals a season but if they lose him in that team there is a lack of goal presence across the team maybe like well it's quite unusual that they've won leagues except for last year without an orthodox striker yeah that he seems to be um, he doesn't really contribute only to goals. He's not a, an all-round player. Yeah. And my goodness, he's a phenomenal machine in terms of being able to score. I totally get that. So, But the funny thing is, if you didn't have him this year, I think Man City would really suffer. They don't have the other players that they had in the past yeah. that could score the goals. Um, and that's 
that's um, so they are more reliant on a player like that now, a striker that can finish and stay in the box. Now, the way he's been employed is really kind of contrary to what Pep's whole philosophy, because he's not someone really that has ever enveloped having an orthodox striker yeah. that just stays in the box and finishes. Yeah, you know? like you, you look at his past teams and you look, obviously, like when he was at Barcelona, he had... Um, Lionel Messi was obviously his main man down the middle but he didn't play as a striker he was more a playmaker he had the likes of Thierry Henry playing on him but playing out wide He David Villa end up playing out wide a lot of the striker-esque players he had didn't play it down the middle like when he came in Aguero didn't play down the middle Aguero was forced out wide or was sitting on the bench really for them and then at Bayern Munich I know he had Robert Lewandowski but a lot of times Lewandowski would be pulling out slightly as well so Maybe with Haaland, obviously Haaland doesn't want to do that wide role. And when I've watched him, he's not doing that wide role. So maybe Guardiola's obviously decided, maybe I need to change this up. And Haaland clearly doesn't want to play my style. So I need to change my style to fit him. Which with Kevin De Bruyne in there, as, as he said, obviously being such a key player, he seems to have that connection with Haaland that he can ping a ball 50 yards, Haaland can go and score a goal. And now that he's missing that, he's not getting that end product nearly that he would be getting like last season. Well, you see, I, I think uh, Haaland is like a typical striker. He needs supply. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if he's not getting the supply, he won't get the goals or he won't get uh, as many goals as, as he should. Yeah. So if you don't have those playmakers around him, uh, it will really affect him. I mean, the famous one about Alan Shearer when he was at Newcastle, and he went through a lean period. Um, and Bobby Robson said, look, Alan, just stay in the box. It's our job to get the ball into you. Because um, he, he started rambling out. Yeah. Um, no, and he told him to back in, and sure enough, he did, and he started banging them in again. So, so um, you know, the, the role of a striker is, is very different. But you look at Liverpool now, they're a very different style as well. You have these three front players and even when you had Firmino in his time before he moved on um, he wasn't your typical number nine that got all the goals but he was the selfless guy that played in a role to make sure the goals came so there's modern football has different types of players up front yeah no I I do agree Um, uh, I think football especially for certain teams with styles like I look at Arsenal I look at Liverpool the they seem to change their style quite regularly. And obviously, there are things when I look, like I know for Arsenal myself, when I look at them, I think the one thing that's missing, especially today when I watched it, there were three or four balls that were pinged across the box and there was no one there because you've Gabriel Jesus pulling out and whipping the ball in. And Martinelli's not making the run. Kai Havertz is there. He's not making the run. And that's probably why what where, where Arsenal lack in, in a squad that... They don't have that clinical striker like, say, for example, an Ivan Tony or a Haaland or someone that's there to be there and not not go out wide necessarily, just be there to to take the ball and and take the shot. Yeah, I I think so. And if you go back in time, the likes of Ian Wright, if you go back to Le- Gary Lineker, they were in that six yard box space yeah. when the ball was there. Arsenal weren't in. The bo- they're not in the box often enough in that six-yard space 
to get the goals that they need to get. Yeah, yeah. And I think that is something that in January Arsenal need need to um need to replace. I suppose kind of with you looking at obviously the the top sides who would be your favorites looking at what we've seen so we've been eight, 18 games we're nearly half halfway through the season who looks the more likely of kind of the main teams up there so you've got Aston Villa you've got Liverpool you've got City you've got Arsenal you've got Spurs kind of would be kind of the main ones up there kind of challenging at the minute who looks more likely to win the league or who do you think are the ones going to be challenging come end of the season well I, I think you, you can't go outside Man City, Liverpool and Arsenal. Um, I don't think the others. I think he's done, Unai Emery has done a great job at Aston Villa, but I don't think they have the squad to to sustain it, but they could do a top four. But, I mean, if Liverpool or whichever club, whether that's Liverpool, Arsenal or Man City, get that consistency and bang in those goals, that's who will win the league. Yeah, but um, I don't see Man City the way they are at the moment, as the same as last year. Yeah, they're too unpredictable. Yeah, um, and they've just gone off the boil a bit, and they've had injuries, and as you said, they lost the likes of Mares, and while they have newer <coughs> players, they yeah. would haven't necessarily got the replacements they need. Yeah, yeah, no, I I, I do agree, and. It will be interesting to see. I I think, in my opinion, right now, looking at it, the the strong. I I'm not necessarily writing off City, but I think today was the game. I think Liverpool Arsenal was the game to see potentially who could win the league. Um, obviously, it would have been great if either team won because they would have extended a bit more in points. So obviously, there's three points difference between Man City, uh, six points difference between Man City and and Arsenal at the top of the table. Um. And I'm not sure kind of where it'll end up, but I do think right now, looking at how they've performed, I do think it'll be Liverpool, Arsenal, and then maybe City in the table, potentially if if, if the form stays the way it is. Because if Man City don't improve quick enough, they're going to fall very quickly because I don't see Liverpool or Arsenal dropping many points. When you look, obviously, Arsenal, literally, the two games they've lost... Obviously, the Newcastle game, they were very unlucky because obviously the decision went against them, really, in that game. If that decision... I think a point was fair in that game when you looked at it. I think in the Aston Villa game, again, Arsenal didn't take their chances, which which punished them in the end. Um, and I think Liverpool, in certain games, like last week against Manchester United, I just think, again, didn't take their chances. But on another day, they probably would have taken their chances. Um, and I think that's where it's different because I think Man City, most of the time they play football, they play to have the possession for 90 minutes and then we'll try and get a goal and hold on to that goal. And I don't see them scoring five or six goals potentially in a game necessarily and winning easily necessarily this season compared to last season where I could see them put seven or eight past past the team realistically looking at the squad depth. Yes. Yeah, I... um. Yeah, it's it's very hard to go outside those three, and um, it it all depends how I suppose Klopp or or Pep get or Arteta get those teams functioning, 
Um, you know, and um, Hallam seems to be an incredible solution. Once he comes back and he's fit, I think he'll get the goals. Um, I mean, the other two frontmen outside of Salah, if you look at uh, Diaz, if you look at New, and you look at the likes of Gapco, they seem to be a little bit snatching at chances. Yeah. Um, rather than clinically finishing. But look, teams can go through different phases from time to time, you know, before they get it right. If they got it right, one of those teams would pull away. Yeah, exactly. Um, obviously, then looking at the, the other side of the table, obviously you've got in the bottom three, you've got Luton on 12 points, you've got Burnley on 11 points, you've got Sheffield United on 9 points, and then just outside you've got Nottingham Forest on 14 points, and Everton on 16 points, and Crystal Palace on 18 points. Um, kind of kind of being the kind of teams that are kind of being dragged into that kind of battle. Do you think it's very likely that the three teams that got promoted this season will go back down, or can you see any of them potentially getting out and maybe the likes of Nottingham Forest dropping in there? I don't think Everton will drop in there. I think Everton will be fine, because I think when I've watched you this season, you look very comfortable. I think without obviously looking at... As I mentioned earlier, without the the points deduction, you'd be up ninth, ninth, tenth in the table. Yeah, I am. Um, well, I suppose neither Nottingham Forest um, or Sheffield United, Luton, um, or um, the Burnley, Burnley really have the ability to score. Yeah, that's what the issue is. Um, so. You know, even if you play, seemingly Burnley are playing very attractive football, but if you can, yeah. they're playing like a, if you like a lesser level of Man City. Yeah. Vincent Company's approach is that. I'm not sure how long the Burnley supporters will put up with that. Yeah. If they don't get the results. Well, right? that's why, like, I was very surprised when they won today against Fulham because yeah. Fulham in recent weeks have been one of the the informed teams. They've been yeah. winning games. Obviously, they were missing their key player in Raúl Jiménez. Um, and I was very surprised Burnley went to Fulham and won. Mm. Um, could that potentially be maybe a change in the guard for for Burnley that just that win might push them that extra level and say, look, we against a good side, we can actually perform and get points. Well, you see, if you if you take it, uh, Vincent Company is learning, right? Yeah. The problem is, will you have long enough to learn enough to to be yeah. better at it? The other thing is you've Chris Wilder now back at Sheffield United, um, and he's tightened them at the back. Yeah. Right. Uh, so what I'm saying, I think those teams will be stronger, but if they're not scoring enough goals, yeah, that's what the real issue is. And I think I would say it is those three. The other issue is now Nottingham Forest have just uh, changed their manager, the, as well as that. There seems to be an inconsistency. Uh, Steve Cooper, when he was there, did great work, but eventually he didn't really know which team yeah. he'd put out. When, yeah, I uh, suppose when they're bringing in between 15 and 20 players every yeah. every transfer window, yeah. Yeah. it's very hard to, to know what 11 to play with. Yeah. And it, it seems like a club that will just spend money willy-nilly, and that way you'll have plenty of players to pick from. Yeah. So I'd say, uh, to answer your question, I'd say the three teams that come up are more than likely to go down. I think uh, Roy Hudson is a 
wise guy. I think he'll know how to steady his Crystal Palace team. I think they'll be fine. Um, but I think Nottingham Forest, depending how they do, Nuno Spiritu Santos is now the manager of Nottingham, whether he can yeah. uh, steady that team. Whether he can say. get them to play like yeah. his Wolves team did when he was with them yes. and they played very well. Um, I suppose looking at those three promoted teams, if you were to see one obviously avoid relegation, who looks the strongest to avoid it in your opinion? Um, well, I I think the way I don't think uh, any of them really are strong enough. Yeah, I think Burnley really haven't invested in players. Yeah, um, so so I think um. Luton probably came up a year or two too soon. They don't really have the ground. They haven't had the level of investment in in mm. in the squad. So it's um. Wait, yeah, I I think with Luton, I think what they've gone for is like you've got Townsend in there, you've got Ross Barkley in there. They've gone yes. for league experience, not necessarily talented players. They've gone for league experience at an older age that they can bring into their squad and basically say look guys this this is how this team will perform this is the type of style we need to play in this game kind of motivate the players to go obviously with the, the loss of Tom Lockyer at the moment it is going to be very kind of hard for that team but the one thing I will say about Luton is I'm very impressed with how they've been playing at home they seem to have that presence at home they've been unlucky obviously losing to late goals um against obviously Arsenal, against Manchester City, um, against Spurs. They But they've put up performance. Obviously, they got a great result against Newcastle today, which I don't think anyone expected. But I suppose with the whole Tom Lockyer thing, it probably pushed the players even more. Yeah, well, well you see, when you look at them, I don't think the football in those three teams that come up is good enough yeah. if you were looking overall. But as well as that, I don't think, they have perfected a strong enough system yet yeah. uh, to sustain themselves consistently. Hmm. But they may prove us wrong, you know? Yeah, no, I do agree. And and I will be interested to see kind of later in the season where kind of all the teams teams fare. Um, looking at, obviously, this, this, this week, the whole Super League fiasco was announced that the Super League is has been allowed the uh, European Commission basically have turned around and said what FIFA and UEFA did was illegal um and obviously we had cer- certain teams in England and uh, Bayern Munich and that come out and PSG come out with a statement and say they have no interest in in taking part they they want to stand with UEFA and play in the UEFA competitions do you think say, down the the line in five or ten years, we will have English clubs and all these playing in these Super Leagues, well, potentially. I mean, I mean, if there's a market for a Super League, we do have a Champions League that is bigger than it was. Yeah. So, in theory, you could have a European League. I just think the way they did it, about went about it the last time, was very underhand, and they tried to pull it off in the wrong way yeah. but if there's a market for a european league it'll come in in some guys yeah um now how that will affect uh, the likes of the premier league or spanish league german or italian w- remains to be seen but 
like if you say the strongest league in in the world at the moment is the Premier League. Yeah. And it's such a marketable organization. Um I don't think teams would want to risk um their source of income by going something too dramatic. Yeah. You know? So whether th- there might be a way of extending the Champions League yeah. would be more natural way to do it rather yeah. than have a s- totally separate league. Yeah, like like as 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 we as everyone is well knows the Champions League obviously is expanding next year to a different format where it's going to be a league format where you play 10 games, five home, five away against teams. Um I don't agree with that format just because it adds more games to a player's um, t- fixtures that to the point that you're going to have players that are going to, going to get injured. You now have this whole Club World Cup coming in in 2025 where it's going to be previous Champions League winners or certain amount of teams from certain um, constituencies qualifying as well, which is going to be in the summer. So you're going to basically have teams playing in these world club world cups every four years now who are going to have more competitive games who are not going to get that break when they've got a euros one summer then they've got the club world cup another summer then they've got the world cup another summer it just seems that they're congesting fixtures and it's not that they're focusing on players welfare really enough do you think that's that's becoming a big issue in football like we're seeing like real madrid this season have had three acl injuries we're seeing a lot of serious injuries happening to players this season, whether it's fi- just from fatigue or overplaying with fixtures. Well, it looks like the life of the footballer with this continued pressure of having to perform will reduce yeah. because they'll have to play far more games. And, yeah, that needs management. But I suppose from a demand point of view, um, the market might want... To see football twelve months of the year, yeah, and that there that's the conflict, yeah. You know, uh, like we had a World Cup in, you know, in the middle of a hot summer, um, that was influenced by other things than just pure football that influenced yeah. that. So, so those type of things can change a game and the way it goes forward. No, no, I do agree, and I think player welfare is something that I don't think, I think these look well enough into. I think player welfare, in my opinion, I know from from coaching, you know, from coaching, player welfare is is one of the most important things and thing because it's all well and good playing all these matches, but if you're not looking after your players, you're going to end up not having the squad that you need. You're not going to end up having. Being able to to rotate, you're going to be end up having to pull players out of their comfort zone, say from academy when they're playing to literally playing on the main stage with in front of thousands of fans when maybe they're not necessarily ready um, for for that level yet because they need that experience first. Um, yeah. With football as well, the other thing kind of in regards to that, do you think? Looking at, say, the history with certain clubs like Manchester United, you've got Arsenal, Chelsea, they have, Liverpool as well, have a big history of pulling academy players into into their squad and 
bring, introducing them, like obviously Arsenal with the likes of Bukayo Saka, Emil Smith-Rowe, United, Marcus Rashford, you've got um, Chelsea, who seem to be selling a lot of their kind of academy graduates. Is the whole academy system changing in English football that teams aren't using their academy academy players or integrating their academy players into their squads instead they're selling them especially the big teams well if you look at let's take united as an example uh it's the biggest sport brand of football in the world you'd argue that maybe real madrid would argue they're up there too but it's it's one of the top two football brands in the world they don't seem to have since sir alex ferguson left that role they yeah. haven't really put in a new structure mm. and they haven't got the if you like the class of 92 and yeah. they end up then not having any structure and then they end up having to buy players mm. and if it's 40 million for another club if you're going to united it's nearly 80 million yeah um so there isn't any system now if you look at a team that seemed to be doing it uh, at a level that's success- <coughs> successful at the moment is Brighton. Yeah. Who seem to have developed underage players. Uh, but I suppose if you don't have academy players um, that you're bringing through, um, you should be able to produce so much homegrown talent over a period. And that needs to be looked at on a club by club basis. I yeah. suppose, really, you know. Yeah, no, I agree. I think one of the ones I always impressed with is Barcelona, because Barcelona seem to have those. I think over five, ten years, they seem to always have those one or two players. Like you've got Pedri, you've got Gavi, you've got um, Yamal. Um, kind of is the kind of the more recent one. They they seem to have those um, history of players that co- come in from their academy and play. And I think just when I look at say English football I would love to see that more where you see a young talent come in like I've seen obviously at Arsenal I've seen Emil Smith-Rowe come in obviously injury a lot of injuries have hampered his career Bukayo Saka who's been probably Arsenal's best player in the last two or three years easily um, and you want to see that more with clubs Um, obviously touching on the United thing that you obviously mentioned with them what I find what I don't understand with Manchester United is when I look at them as a team now I don't really know what their style of football is I don't know what their direction as a club is now you obviously have the Glazers in there who are trying to get this sale of a percentage of their their stake sold to Inuas for Jim Ratcliffe to come in what do you think is the big thing that needs to happen in that club really right now because right now it just looks like a a toxic environment there's a literally the media every day there's a new story saying players have there's players turning on ten hag there's players unhappy and as you obviously had the Jaden sancho hasn't featured for them has doesn't go near the the main first team now because of his um falling out with ten hag yeah well i mean if you look at it from Van Gaal, uh, David Moyes, Van Gaal, Mourinho. You look at the managers that have been at United since Sir Alex left that role. Um, none of them have been successful. And to some degree, they can't all be wrong. 
Yeah. So there's something wrong with the structure in the football club. Um, and it seems to be the director or the chief executive has their own way forward. Whereas um, the clubs that are successful seem to cultivate a culture of football that is separate from, if you like, the business of the club. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's what seems to be lacking. And, you know, you can say, Tin Hag, whether these managers are good enough or not, they have to be given a long period yeah. to build a structure. But I think the one thing that United kind of seem to have forgotten and Manchester United supporters, they feel they should be up there all the time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so much they had um, an incredible man in Sir Alex Ferguson who built three squads over a long period that were highly successful. Um, and he hasn't been replaced properly. Yeah. And he put in a structure that seemed to fall apart when he was gone. Yeah. Um, and and uh, so it's very hard for a new man to come in and do that. And in football as well, people want instant results. Yeah. Um, so you can five matches and you can be gone with any yeah. of these clubs. So so it's um um I suppose if United want to do they have to do it for the long haul and they have to invest in probably a new director of football that will work with the manager to build squads and mm. that should include um a youth policy as well as targeting certain players yeah. internationally. I'm not sure as a player now and if you're in your prime at, say, 26, whether you had an opportunity to join Manchester United, uh, you'd want to at the moment. Yeah. And that's sad from a football point of view to see that. Yeah, you know? yeah, I, th I do agree. I, I think, um, I can't remember who it was, but there was a player who said he was offered the chance to go to United in the summer. And he said, no. We, we literally turned around and said, I'm not interested at all. And I think it's because when you look at United from the outside, you just see uh, basically toxicity in, in there. You don't see the attraction that United has had. Like, obviously, you've got had Varane and Casemiro being two big names. Obviously, won multiple titles with... Um, with... Uh, Real Madrid won Champions League trophies and everything. But United are spending huge money on them who, when they're probably past their prime. They're not the same players they have been. And I think this season it's really shown when they've played that they're past their best. Um, then you've got obviously Ten Hag bringing in the likes of Anthony who honestly is like a f watching a fidget spinner. He just spins on the ball and he doesn't really do anything. And you probably think Ajax literally made a fortune off, off him really he seems to go for the kind of players he knows he's had at Ajax he doesn't really there doesn't seem to be as you as you say there doesn't seem to be any direction of where they're going there's no scout proper scouts in there there's no proper director of football it just doesn't seem that there's any organization in them which is why obviously the club isn't doing as well as they want to be doing yeah, but I think there's another point as well. Apart from the structure, they need to deal with that. Um, Ten Hag is a Dutch manager. 
a successful guy in what he's done. But does the Dutch style suit the Premier League? It's a faster, more intense uh, league. And it all the Dutch teams seem to play in a particular style and way. Yeah. And that won't necessarily suit a Premier League approach. Yeah. But, like, you know, at the same time, you have to back a manager and give him the support and structure to try and achieve over time yeah. and give it a bit of time, you know? Yeah, no, I, I do agree. Um, And do you think when Jim Ratcliffe eventually comes in, when they sort out the whole deal, do you think Ten Hag will still be there or do you think maybe he might go, well, I actually, I'm going to get rid of the manager, I'm going to bring in someone I want, I'm going to bring in, a, obviously, a director of football, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that to try and sort everything across the board? Or do you think he'll come in and say, actually, Ten Hag, you're my man, I'll give you time. What do you need for me to to help this get better for you? Well, you see, I, I'm not sure whether Ten Hag, like, if he hasn't done it up to now, I'm not sure he's the guy. Yeah. So sometimes you just need a fresh start. Unai Emery went into Arsenal, but he didn't do it. Yeah. So it, it wasn't going to last. Um, Arteta went in, was given a bit of time, and it's proven that he can do it. Yeah. So he is getting the support um, and structures around him yeah. for success. So, yeah, it might mean another guy, but there's no point just taking another name and not giving them the level of support that yeah. they need. And I suppose then the other question to that is, if, if Ten Hag isn't the man, who would you think would be a manager that you think would suit Manchester United if they did the whole restructure and they followed? Is there anyone that comes to mind that you might think, actually, that would be the right person for the job? I suppose you have to look at um, the last number of years um, and you like the likes of Tootle has had success. Yeah. Um, the likes of... Uh, you and I, Emery, I think you have to look at the managers that have been winning the trophies. Yeah. Because to win trophies in Europe, you have to know your stuff. The The issue that you have with the likes of Unai Emery and Tuttle uh, at the likes of Bayern Munich is they're very much hands-on coaches that direct the players directly themselves. Yeah. Um, in the medium term, I'm not sure that's the right type of... Yeah. Man- whereas successful managers, um, they direct it and they have coaches that can change over time. And even if you look at Sir Alex Ferguson, over the time he changed his coaches that were around him and he was the leader. Yeah. So so I think you have to look for a guy that has a successful track record of winning trophies. Yeah. And that has the belief. And then that can build a structure around what he's trying to achieve. Yeah, no, I do agree. And I think looking at, obviously, how, as you said, managers, I think after Arsene Wenger and after uh, Sir Alex Ferguson, I think there isn't that longevity of managers anymore. That's kind of gone. You don't have a manager who's going to be there for over 10 years. Realistically, a manager, most most managers will be there five six years on average you will might get the one or two that stay there longer but i don't think many managers now want to stay for long periods now because 
I think the challenge has changed for them that after a period of time they go, actually, I want a new challenge. Let's move out of this. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to know. I I can't automatically say there's a particular manager that United should go for at the moment. Yeah. Because um, a lot of them are in jobs anyway of yes, the main ones that you yes, think of. Yeah. So, but um, I, I, I would go back and study... Um, if you look at the likes of Ancelotti, would he come? Uh, you know, he's been in Real Madrid before. Uh, how long will he stay in Real Madrid? Would yeah. he go to United? Yeah. Um, Ancelotti seems to be able to handle a very uh, big players, and he has this, I suppose, very calm, uh, successful approach, and he seems to be de- able to deal with egos, and let them play their own way and let yeah. them develop. So what, whether he would be interested in something like Manchester United, he's had a successful track record no matter where he's been. Yeah. You know? Well, uh, I, I think with Ancelotti, as per, you said, stated it perfectly, with Ancelotti, a perfect example of a player is James Rodriguez. When Ancelotti was at Bayern Munich, when Ancelotti was at Real Madrid, he had James Rodriguez there. James Rodriguez was playing for him, was playing very well. Then he went to Bayern Munich... And James Rodriguez came on loan. And he played very well under them. And then, obviously, he, he, he went to Everton then after. And again, James Rodriguez were bought in. And, in my opinion, was one of, one of my favourite players at Everton at the time. Just seemed to, to click. And then, you after, obviously, that, you had Benitez come in and wasn't interested in James Rodriguez. He was one of the first players he shipped out of the squad. So, obviously, someone like Ancelotti would be able to manage, maybe, someone, some of those big egos in that Manchester United dressing room and be able to get the best out of them, as you say. Yeah, I think, um, I, I suppose it, it takes a real leader to be able to manage guys uh, of that level. Um, the problem is probably with Ancelotti, Everton wasn't a big enough club to be able to keep his interest yeah. and the level of investment, plus the fact it ended too soon yeah and so it's very easy put your finger back and say Everton made a huge mistake I'm not sure it's all down to the club yeah 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 I suppose then kind of the last question I have obviously for this episode as well is obviously where do you see Everton finish coming end of the season do you think you could break into that top half of the table if you keep up your good performances or do you think you'll be comfortably away from the um, the relegation zone? I think um, the way we're playing at the moment with that confidence and that structure, I think we'll be out of danger. Yeah. Um, and after that, I think we can build on that this year. Um, and I would say if we could finish roughly kind of mid-table, um, I suppose the other thing is uh, we have to get a bit of stability into the club. There's talking about new investors and 777 partners. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of speculation. That, but if we did get that, it would mean that we could maybe in the summer have the uh, financial resources to invest in maybe adding in some players yeah. that you could aspire next year maybe to go to Europe. Yeah. Um, and that would be a real target to try and achieve that, considering we, we will have a new stadium. Yeah. So so I think that would be something 
to really aim and look forward to. So I say mid-table. Yeah. No, I do think, I think with your new stadium as well, you're going to have a bigger capacity of crowd. You're going to pull in more fans. It's probably going to maybe motivate players more to obviously perform as well. Um, and I can I can see you, like, for me, Everton as a history of a club, and I say this all the time at Rury, Everton are one of the teams, when you look back, kind of in just the Premier League alone, that were always in the top half of the table fighting for European spots. So to see them this far down in a table, I think kind of the last few seasons has been a surprise to everyone because they're such a big club. They're one of the teams that hasn't been relegated from the Premier League. I think there's only about six six teams in the in the Premier League that haven't been relegated, um, which is a incredible statistic uh, to to have um, for for a big club like that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's sixty five years. I um, don't quote me exactly on that, but it's a long time that Everton have been in the top division uh, in the UK. And yes, they they were always regarded as a top club like Aston Villa there are other teams that are very good I mean Newcastle are always a big club too and they've got new owners and they could command a bigger crowd so there there are teams there that traditionally were very good but it's, it's all about uh, running it properly yeah um, you know and I think we started with a good manager now we seem to have a good director of football um, and if we can get this new investment, I think we'll stabilise. That means the football people can concentrate on the football and build a good squad and aim higher. Yeah, no, I do agree. And I, I'm actually looking forward to seeing over the, the next, I suppose, the next year to see how how it changes, especially with potential new investors. A new stadium being built might be something that, might attract them to the club as well, saying, oh, this yeah. is a nice big stadium. Yes. More money potentially coming into our hands to, to invest in the club um, would be fantastic. And I'm looking forward to seeing where Everton do finish in the table. I do think you'll be up mid-table at least. I think you're, you're a very good side. When I look at some of the other sides in the league, I think you're one of the more consistent sides, consistent sides recently as well. Um, and it, it's definitely something to keep an eye out. Um, but I suppose that's probably the best place to end the podcast episode. We've covered quite a lot today, um, a lot kind of across the board, um, and I'm sure there's uh, you're going to be looking forward to watching more football over the festive period. Yeah, there's some great matches on, so yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it. It's a very intense time of year for clubs and, and uh, the Christmas period, so... It, that can have an effect on teams and um but there's some great matches and yes looking forward to it That's yeah great. yeah no and uh, as i said thanks again for jumping on it's always great it was great to have you back on because uh i always felt i needed to get get an everton fan back on and who best to, then to bring my dad thank you <laughs> thanks, thanks for having me no problem um thanks everyone obviously again who's listened to the podcast as well on a regular basis it's it's always great to see the following we hopefully should have another episode or two coming out obviously before the new year but uh until next time i've been keen samuel mar and this has been what a hit son